for the the many times that he's brought your word to us and we know that you've got something for us tonight and we pray that you'll bless him as he brings that word and help our hearts to be open amen Thank you. It's no better, is it, once it gets switched on? 1 Peter chapter 3, um, and we're just going to go to verse 8 initially, and then we'll maybe look at a bit more as we go on. Um, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that any of them who do not believe the word, they may be won over with words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your wives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Um, Over the last few weeks, we've we've heard this word submission quite a lot in different contexts. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, you will have heard about um, slaves being in submission to their uh, masters and then a couple of weeks before that you heard Pastor Phil talking about submission in marriage. Um, so this word submission seems to be hitting us quite a lot at this moment in time um, and with it is the kind of concept of obedience and what that actually means um, and whenever you kind of look at this passage you're conscious that that you know, feminists or liberal theologians um, attack Paul on this. They 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 tend to categorise him as a chauvinist or or whatever. And I think that's a bit of a nonsense anyway, because for me it's irrelevant who wrote it. Once it's in the Word of God, it's the Word of God. Um, so give it a name. You know, if I'd have been around at that time, uh, I might have written some letters called Jez's Epistles, and you might have disliked them. But if they'd been included in the Bible, it wouldn't have been made a blind bit of difference. You'd have to do what they said. Um, but anyway, Paul gets a, a bit of a hard time. But I, I think that it is possible with Paul um, to view this word around submission and this idea quite gently. Because, first of all, it has more than one meaning other than uh, obedience. It has to, uh, to take heed or to be mindful of. Um, And with Paul, he kind of then puts it within the context of our expectations of husbands. And of course, his command to husbands is love your wife as Christ loved the church. Um, And if men do that, then submission is a non-issue. You know, it just would be a non-issue. 
Um, but I'm surprised, really, that Peter gets under the radar. Because Peter's far tougher than Paul when it comes to this stuff. You know, there is no kind of negotiation about what submission means to Peter. It means to obey. Um, and obey in the toughest context. Not in the nice context of, I'll obey my husband because he loves me like Christ loves the church. In the um, previous passage, he's talking about masters and slaves. And he's saying to slaves, obey your masters. Now, of course, it's easy if you've got a nice one. You know, if you've got one that says, oh, that looks heavy, can I carry it for you? You look tired, have a break. You know, we can all be in submission to them. But Peter doesn't say that. He says, whatever they're like, and even if they're unpleasant, do what you're told and obey. And he does, you know, he does it here as well. So there is kind of um, no um, negotiation, I think, as far as Peter's concerned. For him, obedience is tied up with submission. And the context here is quite interesting because in verse 1, he is talking to women who have an unbelieving husband. So it's a very specific context. So he's looking at, you know, when he's writing this letter, or he's preaching the sermon, he's looking at those women who have unbelieving husbands. And he's saying to them, I'm telling you, be in submission to your husband. He's not saying, you know, and these people, these men, are not going to love you as Christ loved the church. Now, they might be loving. You know, let's not be silly and suggest that, that you know, non-Christian men can't be loving towards their wives. They clearly can. But they're not going to love you in the way that Christ loved the church. And, and Peter says, but be in submission. Do what you're told. Be in submission. And in doing so, there is the possibility that you will win them round. Because it says that these, this concept of these people, these men that do not believe the word, it's actually quite a strong context. It's actually not only do they not believe the word, but they are choosing to contradict it. So if you have a husband who is not just unbelieving, but actually may be consciously choosing um, to live opposite, Peter's saying, my expectation is, and God's expectation is, that you are in submission. And then he's very clear about whether um, submission really does mean obedience. Because he uses Sarah as an example. And it's interesting because Pastor Phil you know, reminded us a few weeks ago about how Princess Diana chose to have the word obey in her wedding service. And in this passage, Peter says, submission means obeying. Because that's what Sarah did. And actually called her husband Lord. Now we sang earlier, Jesus is Lord. When we sing Jesus is Lord, there is an expectation, isn't there? That we do what Jesus asks us to do. There's no concept that we would maybe pay attention to or take heed of. Or think that's good advice with the option that if you don't like it, don't do it. When you're calling somebody Lord, you're calling them Lord. So it will be interesting this evening when some of you wives go home and address your husband as my Lord. It's not going to happen, is it, Christine? <laughs> Try, see what happens. It might just, it might just revolutionise your relationship if it needed it. Um, but... 
but for for Peter, this is this is non-negotiable stuff. You know, be in submission and call him Lord. And as I was thinking about this, um, I was kind of I had uh, most of what I'm going to say this evening are some kind of random musings that I've had this week or, or last week. So if it don't make any sense, it don't make any sense. But I was just musing things over, and I you might remember that I'm I'm now a retired head teacher, but I started off my um, teaching career as a drama teacher. I, I have my first degree is in performance art, so I, I trained to be an actor uh, originally, uh, chose not to do that, and then eventually went to teach drama. Um, so I have a real passion for William Shakespeare. He's one of my heroes. I think um, he's a, I think his understanding of human nature through his plays is just quite unbelievable. So I have a real passion, and I've had the real privilege over the years of directing various Shakespeare plays. And I have to say, my favourite is The Taming of the Shrew. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with The Taming of the Shrew. Um, if not, uh, get the Kiss Me Kate, that's it. says it three times in, in, uh, you know, in three stages in the play. Um, Petruchio says to Kate, kiss me, Kate. And each of those three kisses are quite significant in the play, but... Um, I don't want this to be a drama lesson, rather. I want it to be a sermon. But anyway, The Ten of Shrews are fantastic. It's, it's a, just a deeply, I think it's a deeply distressing play, to be honest. And it's about Kate. And Kate is a shrew. And by that we mean somebody that's forthright, somebody that says it as it is, somebody that's strong-willed and is very clear about what she thinks and says it. Um... And as a result, nobody wants to take her on. Nobody wants to marry her because she's just too much to handle. And that's bad news for her younger sister, Bianca, because she's drop-dead gorgeous. Uh, and there's loads of men after her. But you know how the rules are. Oldest goes first, then the next one. So nobody's getting near Bianca until Kate gets sorted out. And so all the suitors get together and they sort of say to this really strange, eccentric man called Petruchio, do you fancy taking on Kate? Um, and there's some money involved and also she's got quite a big dowry. So eventually he does. He takes her on and he marries her. Um, and then he begins to tame her. Um, which is where the Taming of the Shrew comes. And it is quite distressing because the things that he does are, are quite horrible. He deprives her of sleep. He deprives her of food. Uh, he makes her promises that he breaks. And the idea is that he's going to try and break his spirit. And it's a bit like he uses this analogy of um, a, um, a man with a hawk training a hawk so that eventually it becomes um, part of the fal you know, the falconer is in charge of it. And it culminates with this incredible scene where some men are sat around and they've had some wine and they want a bit of a bet. And so they say, let's summon our wives here now. And the one that gets here quickest can win 100 quid. And so they, the men get their servants and they, the th three of them, two send off for their wives. One says... Oh, I'm not coming, and then the next one says, they're not coming, and then Petruchio says, I'll summon my wife, and she comes immediately. The shrew, the tame shrew comes, and so he wins the bet, and then he says, I can't believe that your wives didn't come, they need a real telling off. So Kate, you go and find those women, 
bring him here and you give him a real telling off. And there's this deeply moving speech at the end, right at the end of the play, where she says, you know, stop looking like that and start behaving like proper women and start being in submission to your husband. Uh, we're soft, we're weak. They're working their socks off to give us a nice wife. Get yourself sorted is what she says. And the final act is where she says, you know, women should be in submission and we should lay our hands at our husband's feet or under our husband's feet. And she gets up and she does exactly that. She kneels at Petruccio's feet and puts her hand under his foot as the ultimate expression of submission. And Petruccio says, come, kiss me, Kate, for the third time. Um, now, I, I, for the life of me, I don't know what happened in this play. Uh, I've directed it. I haven't got a clue what happened. I suspect, my suspicion is, that actually he never broke a spirit. She understood what it was to be loved. That's what I genuinely believe. And as a result, for her, submission, even to this really eccentric man, was dead easy because he loved her unconditionally. Now, that's, I'd like to see it done more contemporaneously now because I'd be interested to see what a director would make of that kind of message. You know, what would we be saying today? Um, but it's that kind of concept. Now, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Um, I do believe that the Bible teaches that people are to be in submission to other people. We are to be in submission to a authority. We are be, to be in submission to elders. We are to be in, in submission to our husbands. But what worries me, and I'll talk about this later on, is, is what that means. Because what we do is we put a value judgment. And it suggests that if you submit yourself to somebody, you are somebody less than them. Now the Bible has no concept of that. The Bible does not say, because I'm in submission to my elders in my church, I am submission to the, the government authorities, I'm in submission to my husband, I'm in submission to one another, that does not make me any less or any greater than anybody else. And this is what I think we as Christians need to get our head around. It's what we do with stuff that really, really matters. So, Peter is saying, be in submission, and that is the way that you will win your husband round. And then he reminds women, and people in general, that, you know, that God is somebody that looks for inner beauty. You know, God is looking on the inside, not just on the outside. But this, this is where my musings came, because I was thinking about this whole concept of, of beauty. Um, and... In fact, um, I was really bemused a few weeks ago. I had Josiah, my grandson, in the car, and um, he was in the back, and Bev was in the back, and he said, Grandma, can we sing? And so she said, yeah. He said, can you get any Ed Sheeran songs on? So Bev said, I'll try and find them on my phone. So she finds them, and he knows every single word to every Ed Sheeran song, which is, um, I don't know where he's found that from, how he does it. And I was... As some of you know, I, I work with um, Kay at the coffee shop, and in a quiet moment, we were talking about Ed Sheeran, and Kay, Kay was saying how much she liked him, and I quite like him as a songwriter, but I'm a bit horrified by, his, by one of his latest songs, which is entitled, I'm in love with the shape of you. 
That's the song. I'm in love with the shape of you. I'm in love with the shape of your body is what he sings. Um, and I was just thinking, really? And what happens when it changes? You know, what happens when it's not the shape that you're singing about now and it's a different shape? Do you stop loving her then? Um, and so I was just kind of thinking about this, this sort of concept of, um, of beauty um, and inner beauty and external beauty. But then I was thinking, but actually, if you think about it, this, if I was to put up some pictures of supposedly beautiful people and not beautiful people, whether you like it or not, you would be able to categorise them. You would. Whether you, you, know, you might not, you know, I'd be a bit bullshit if that happened to me and I'd be going, no, I'm not going to engage in that activity because that is not right. But I'd still be able to do it. I'd still be able to say who was beautiful and who was not beautiful. Give, you know, I know there's a bit of debate, like not everybody likes a beard and not everybody likes a bald head and all that kind of stuff. But we could do it. But this concept of, of people being beautiful is not new. You know, you can go back 4,000 years and Abraham was lying about his wife on two occasions because he knew that she was beautiful and that, you know, somebody would want to marry her. Rachel is described as being beautiful. And bless her, what, you know, what's the description of Leah? She has poor eyes. You know, she'd be one of those girls in modern times who have those sort of jam jar glasses or something, you know. So she's different. So 4,000 years ago, there was this concept of what is beautiful and what is not. And as I've been thinking about it, I'm thinking, I'm not sure that here we can fight that. But actually, I think what is beautiful is a reminder of how God made the world in the first place. And what is not beautiful is a result of... You know, is a reminder of, of what happens when we mess up what God does. But I'm not sure that we can battle against the concept of beauty. But I think what we can battle against is what we do with it and the values that we associate with it. Now, I had a colleague when I was working at Boston Spa who was a DT teacher. And she was very, very beautiful. You just looked at her and thought, wow. What a beautiful face. And I was really good friends with her. And, and they decided to bring a magazine out for the school. And, of course, she was chosen to be the first person on the, on the cover. I guess the idea is that if you come to this school, you will be mixing with beautiful people. I think that was the kind of message that we were sending. Um, and so they took a photograph of a DT teacher. So not only is she beautiful, but she can make beautiful scones as well. So it's, everything's fantastic. Um, but the picture was so so uncomplimentary i mean of all the photographs you could take they chose that one and when i first saw it i was like oh my word and i said because i was really good friends with her, i said jeanette that is not you at your best and she said no but i normally am and then she just walked away but when i looked at her face she wasn't being proud and she wasn't being arrogant she was just stating the fact that's how she'd come to understand herself. I can't escape the fact that people consider, at least what she was saying, me to be beautiful because this is the face I've got. But it didn't matter to her. It just did not matter. And it seems to me that the, the whole thing about beauty is what we do with it and the values that we attach to it and the incorrect values that we attach to it. Um, I was 
reminded some um, of, of a, a story that I heard Tony Campolo tell some years ago. And he said that he had been invited to be the president of his school student society. And he was quite flattered because, you know, it was quite a prestigious thing. And when he spoke to the principal about it, the principal said, and one of your responsibilities will be to organise the, the school prom. And he said, what's a school prom? And he said, how could you not know that? And he said, well, is it a dance? And they said, yeah. He said, well, I come from a really strict Baptist tradition and we don't dance. So he said, I'm, I might have difficulty with this. So he said, well, why don't you just go on to the prom anyway and see what it's like and then decide whether you know, you can organise it or not. So he went and he said he was completely bemused by what happened, but he was com completely bemused by the end because at the end, the DJ got up and said, right, this is now the final song. Please cho choose your partners. And all the guys that had sat down and not danced all evening were up like a shot. And there were long cues for certain girls and no cues for other girls. And he said, and he, couldn't work out what was happening because he'd never been to this before and then he suddenly realized and he watched in the corner a girl that he knew really really well because she was in his classes and he watched that nobody approached her and then the dance got up and she stood up and walked out quickly and got in the back of her dad's car and he said that as he drove away he could tell by her body language, that she was crying uncontrollably. And so he went back to the principal and said, I will not accept that role. And they said, and he said, why not? He said, I will not be part of that system that does that to people. I just refuse to be part of a system that makes people feel less than or better than because of the way they look. And it seems to me that that's where we need to be challenging, is, is what do you do with it that seems to be um, the issue I was also horrified recently to watch a programme that was called The Restaurant Tricks of the Trade, I don't know if you've seen it it was on the, maybe a couple of years ago now um, and I was really horrified at some of the things that happened in restaurants and one of the things that they said is that when you walk into a restaurant particularly if you're it's early evening and you're one of the first customers. They look at you and they make a judgment about how you look. And if they consider you to be good looking, they will sit you in the window seats. So that when people walk past, they think that's a restaurant for attractive people. Now we all think we're attractive, so we're all going to want to go in there because that's where we belong. And I thought, no, that, that can't happen. And so they conducted an experiment. They found 10 restaurants in Manchester that had window seats. And they paid these two models, female models, to go in. And nine out of 10 times they were invited into the window seat. And then there was this reporter, you might have seen him, he's incredibly disfigured. His face is, is big and he's got this huge excess of skin. Um, you know, really, really unattractive man. And he would wait outside until the women walked out. So he knew that the seat was available. And then he would ask if he could have a seat. And nine times out of ten, he was told that the restaurant was full. And there were no seats available. 
And on one occasion, he was invited in, but he was sat at the back of the restaurant behind a pillar so nobody could see him. And it seems to me that's what we need to be fighting against. You know, that, that kind of stuff that goes with it. I was talking, um, just before I opened the coffee shop, I went to a, um, an antique shop in Skipton. And I quite like watching antique programs. I quite like, I'm quite interested in antiques. You do when you get older because you become one yourself, don't you? But, um, um, but I, I, I can't, there's this antiques road trip where they, two um, antique dealers battle against each other, buy antiques as cheap as they can, sell them as, as expensive as they can. And this antique shop in, in Skipton had been on the programme. So it had these massive signs that said, um, as seen on Antiques Road Trip. So I said to the lady that owned the shop, I'm not sure that that's a particularly good boast. And she said, but we've been on it three times. I said, even worse. I said, that's not a good boast. And she said, why do you say that? I said, because it's not a good programme. She said, how can you say that? It's Antiques Road Trip. I said, well, I'll tell you what I dislike about it. There's this young female antique dealer called Christina Trevelyan who's very attractive and she walks into the antique shop and she goes hi it's Christina here uh, you've got a vase in the window um, and I'd like to buy it but I, I don't want to pay what, what, what's on there so and she fl flaps her eyelid and flirts a bit and this male and old antique dealer goes well what's on it well, it's, it's £100. But I don't want to pay £100. And so the antique dealer goes, I'll tell you what, Christina, for you, you can have it for a fiver. And she goes, oh, thank you. <laughs> now, I like buying antiques, so maybe I'm just a bit bitter, first of all, that I don't have that, <laughs> uh, you know, strategy in my armoury. So I'll, I'll come clean about that, okay? Maybe I am. But, what upsets me is that concept that these men are succumbed by this beauty. And I know that I don't have, I don't have a hope. I said to her, I said, that's what I don't like about it. But I said, I'll tell you what, I've got an idea. I said, I'm setting up a coffee shop soon. Uh, I said, and you just give me an idea. I'm going to have two price lists. I'm going to have one for beautiful people and one for ugly people. I said, that's the way I'll deal with it. I said, now, I said, I'm thinking aloud here, so I don't know how it's going to go. I said, I don't know if I'm going to let people self-select. You know, so you come in and I say, if you consider yourself to be beautiful, choose off that. If you're ugly, there's a 100% markup on that one, but choose off there. And I see somebody... Uh, uh, but I'll let the, or maybe I'll make the judgments. But I thought, what a nonsense, you know. I'd quite like to do it just to see how, you know, I'd get some publicity, wouldn't I? But um, what a nonsense. It's what we do with it that seems to be the issue for me. Is that if we can be factual and just be truthful, I'm okay with that. But it's when we make value judgments and we say that because you are beautiful, you are better than. And because you are unattractive, you are worse than. 
And it seems to me that that's where we've got to make our stance as Christians. And we need to begin, and I know it wouldn't make a particularly good song for Ed Sheeran, but we need to get, start singing about that inner beauty, that, that quality. Because what, I'm sure you'd agree with me, what I found over the years is that, that, some, that beauty changes according to their behaviour. I've seen some people that I initially thought looked very beautiful, but when I saw the behaviour, I thought they were less than what I thought they were. And I've seen other people who at first I didn't consider to be particularly attractive to grow because of who they are. But God's looking for who we are on the inside. He's looking for our character. He's looking for a personality. We can't do a great deal um, you know, with, with how we present ourselves but we can do a great deal with the help of the Holy Spirit about our inner quality and our inner beauty. So it seems to me that, you know, trying to fight the concept of beauty is, is a non-starter, but fighting misplacing values on things is where we are as Christians. And again, Tony Campolo once wrote a book um, and he talked about who swapped the price tags around. And he got this idea when he, because he's a bit mischievous too, and he, he got this idea that when he went in the old days in the supermarket, but you know when they used to sort of stick price lists on produce, you know, with that gun thing. <clears throat> he got the idea that what happens if you just swapped them around and you took off the really, you know, expensive beef one and you put it on the baked beans and you took the baked bean ones and put them on the steak... He thought, wouldn't that be funny? But then he thought, but that's what our world's done. It's swapped our value system. It's upset our value system. And it's told us that there are certain things that matter. But if you talk to God, they don't matter one bit. And there are things that really, really, really matter to God that the world says has no value whatsoever. And what... I think that what the scripture is trying to do is, is it's trying to get us back to that kingdom value system where we value what matters to God and we dismiss those things that don't matter. And then, so having spoken about relationships and, and wives, Peter then goes on to talk about, um, about how we should conduct ourselves. So let's just look for the last few minutes at verse 8 to 12. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For, quoting from Psalm 36, Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, this is where Peter is saying, these are the value systems. These are the things that matter to God. These are the qualities that stand up. These are the things that we should be holding ourselves out, holding out for. Not this concept of external beauty or, or being better than. 
but holding out for these. He reminds us to be like-minded, to be sympathetic, to love, and to be compassionate, and to be humble. And I love that the kind of, the way that it finishes with is this, this final word, humility. Because that's what, what I believe humility is. Is humility is having an honest um, assessment of yourself as a person. That's what humility is for me. When I talk, when I hear people talking about humility, um, that's what comes into my mind. I'm looking for somebody who's got a realistic view of themselves, who is aware of their weaknesses, who is aware of their strengths, and then gives glory to God for those strengths. That's what I believe humility to be. And in the concept of beauty, it makes sense to me because factually, some people are more beautiful than others. But so what? It's just a fact. It's nothing more than that. And as Christians, you know, I believe that we do have to look at ourselves and we do have to have that realistic view that self-awareness. One of the things I struggle most with in people is people that lack that self-awareness. I struggle with that, I've got to say. I, I, and particularly as you get older, I don't know how you can get to be older and still be misinformed about yourself. Um, so I particularly struggle with that. But we've got to be able to look at ourselves... And we need to listen to what other people say too. And then just have a realistic and honest view of who we are. You see, it's not humble to say, for example, for a great guitarist to say, well, I can strum a chord or two. That's not humility. That's dishonesty. No, actually, you are a very, very gifted guitarist. It's not humble of somebody that's got a beautiful singing voice to say, well, I can just about sing in tune. No, you can't. You've got a beautiful singing voice. And it's about, you know, that's, that's false humility. God's not approving of that. He's not saying, oh, well done for putting yourself down. What God's expecting you to hear is, is yes, I do have a nice voice. And it's a great pleasure to use it for, for Jesus. Um, yes, this is my strength and it's a great pleasure to serve my king with it. That's what God's expecting to hear from us. Not a, a nonsense dismissal, but equally, he doesn't want us to be admitting to something that we, we can't do. You know, I'd, most of our family can sing and sing in tune. I don't know what happened to our Sam. Um, he's, he missed him I don't know how and then he's married to Hannah that's got the most beautiful voice of an angel um, these are just facts I'm not saying Hannah's better than Sam because she's got a beautiful voice I'm not saying Sam's better than Hannah because he's a gifted teacher I'm just saying they are what they are these are facts and I don't want to add anything to it that would imply that something is better than anybody else because we're not. So in our relationships, 
you know, let's be compassionate, let's be kind, let's be loving, and let's just have that realism about who we are. And when we look at those strengths that God has given us, and he's given us all strengths and gifts in different ways, let's just acknowledge the grace of God in giving those things to us and giving him the glory. And then it won't matter whether you're the most beautiful person on the earth or, or the not, or the least. It really doesn't matter. All that matters is I know who I am and I know what God has enabled me to do and I will serve him and glorify him. Nobody better. You know, you could be the pastor of the biggest church in the world. Don't make you any better than anybody else. We're all equal. And that's when we go back and Peter reminds us, because when he talks about husbands in verse 7, he does remind husbands that their wives are co-heirs of Christ. We share that in common. We're both inheriting the kingdom. We're both inheriting heaven. You know, we're just different. And that seems to me the thing that, that we just seem to struggle with difference. We just seem to struggle that, that you know, some people are more gifted, some people have more strengths, um, but it really doesn't matter. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting because finally in this passage, you know, we are reminded that our behavior has an impact on our, on our prayer life. In that last verse, he, he reminds husbands and he says, you know, you need to make sure that you look after your wives. Because if you don't, your prayers might be hindered. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? If, you know, at the end of the service, we, you know, we had somebody coming forward to be counselled and they said, um, I keep praying for stuff and it never happens. And you'd hope the counsellor's first question would be, so how do you treat your wife? <laughs> how do I treat my wife? Um, well, you just said that your prayers might be hindered. Yeah. Well, I'm asking you, how do you treat your wife? Because that's what Peter says, be careful. And then later on he says that, um, um, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if you said, well, actually, I'm very um, loving towards my wife, um, very considerate, I love her as Christ loved the church, you could say, oh, well, it's not that that's hindering your prayers. Have you done any evil recently? Um, why do you ask that? Well, because that might be what's hindering your prayers. You know, let's not be naive to think that our righteousness, our holiness, our walk with Christ doesn't have an impact on our on our prayer life because Peter says it does so let's walk righteously let's and ultimately all that you can do is you can only give an account for who you are and what God has asked of you so whatever circumstances you find yourself in you will give your your account before God at the end of 
of the agent, and you will give an account for the wife that you have been. And your circumstances might not be taken into account. And I will give an account for loving my wife as Christ loved the church, and my circumstances might not be taken into account. Because the Holy Spirit's power is sufficient to enable us to do what God has called us to do. And this is the last thing I'm going to say. You know, God does not, because it would be a form of cruelty, God does not call us to do something that we cannot do. There is nothing in the scriptures that God calls us to do that without the help of the Holy Spirit, without, yet yeah, we might have to fight with it and we might have to work hard at it, but there is nothing that God has called us to do that he knows is impossible for us. All things are possible in Christ Jesus. Thank you. So we're going to sing a song about wives being in submission to their husbands, I take it. I can't find one. Oh, no, no, no it's, not, it's not been written yet, has it? I can write it, Jess, and I'll sing it. going to sing my Jesus. <laughs> I didn't know who the preacher was, never mind what the sermon was going to be about. From his glorious unlimited resources, God will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love is may experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.